Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with the number 13, as we pick up in Genesis chapter 14, verse 4. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. 13 is a very interesting number, the number of rebellion. And so it is significant that it was in the 13th year that they rebelled. The number 13 is a number that does appear in other places. It's always a a number of rebellion. It happens to be the number of Satan. Every name for Satan in the Greek, when you take the gametria, the numeric value of those names, and total it up, it's always divisible by 13. Very interesting thing. I don't know what it means, but it is just the number of rebellion and has been scripturally the number of Satan, the number 13. And that is why 13 has become considered as an unlucky number. And that is why whenever you get into spiritism, spiritual seances and so forth, and you you begin to dabble in those realms of of spiritism, the number 13 becomes a very significant number. I don't know if you've ever been through the Winchester Rifle House. The uh, woman supposedly was being directed by the spirits in, in the building of that house, and she had men working there continually. But as you go through the house, you'll find 13 windows in a room, or you'll find six steps down, seven steps up, and the number 13 is woven through the house all the way in the dimensions of the rooms, in the number of windows, in the steps, and so forth. And and she used that number through the whole house. It is a number that anyone who dabbles into spiritism is familiar with because so many of the seances and so forth, the number 13 is an important a number to them, and interestingly enough, it is a number of, scripturally, a number of Satan, the number of rebellion. So, 12 years they served the king, and the 13th year they rebelled. Now, in the 14th year, he got together with these kings of Babylon, Babylonia, and they made an invasion in the area that is today Jordan, but in history was Moab and they invaded across the high country, clear on down to the area of Edom, uh, the, uh, coming down to, oh, it gives you the city, all of the cities that they conquered here. And, and they came on, finally, across to Kadesh. Uh, they, they came south and then began to move west as they came to the area of Edom and Mount Seir is where it was and then across to Kadesh. Having conquered all of these cities, and archaeology has certainly confirmed this particular part of history here in the Bible, as they have uncovered vast cities that were never rebuilt. They they just totally wiped out the cities and all, took the spoils, and the cities were never rebuilt They have dated the ruins and so forth to about the 17th century B.C. to the 19th century B.C. so that it it puts it about the time of this invasion. And they've actually discovered many of these cities that are named here uh, and the ruins of these cities 
uh, as uh, they have put their spade to the tells and have uncovered really a, a, a vast civilization that once existed there, but they were wiped out by this invasion of the Babylonian Confederacy with the Persian Confederacy of Kings. Now, the whole purpose of the invasion was ultimately to get at Sodom, these five cities of the plain that had rebelled against the tribute that they were paying to uh, uh, Kidolomer, the king of Elam. And so they came in verse 10 to the valley of Sodom, which was full of slime pits. Now, the word slime pits is actually the asphalt pits. Uh, this was an area of, of a lot of uh, tar asphalt pits down there in the valley, which when God sent fire from heaven to consume Sodom, probably set these things on fire and they probably burn for months. Uh, once you get that hot enough to where it's ignited and burning, it probably went on and on and on. So it was an area that was full of slime. It's actually, it's an interesting thing that uh, in the Tower of Babel, they use pitch for mortar. The word pitch there again is, is a word that signifies tar. Uh, Rockefeller, when he read the Bible, saw that and figured, hey, if it's tar, there must be oil. And that's why he began to explore for oil over in that area of Saudi Arabia and Iran and so forth. And that's why he became such an extremely wealthy man. He read his Bible and used his head. <laughs> and so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled into the mountains. Now, of course, if you're down there, man, you know that there's, there's uh, all kinds of steep cliffs and caves and hiding places and Masada, one of the mountains down there that would overlook the area that was once uh, Tyre and Sidon. And so these kings took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their victuals, supplies, and they went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped, probably one of Lot's servants. And he told Abram in the Hebrew, and of course this is the first time the word Hebrew is used. It probably comes from the name of his great-great-great-grandfather, Eber. And so uh, he was called the Hebrew here. It's a name that was adopted later. Uh, but Israel was the name that really is adopted for the people because of Jacob, and uh, Israel defines more the nation that God had blessed. The Hebrews would include actually the Arabs in a technical sense uh, because they are the descendants of Ishmael. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were confederate with Abram. So Abram had these others that he was dwelling in this area of Mamre with, Eshkel, from whom the valley of Eshkel became named later on, and his two brothers, Mam uh, Mamre and Aner. And when Abram heard that his brother, that his lot, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants that were born in his own house, 318, and he pursued them unto Dan. So gives you the size of Abram's wealth and all that he had 318 men who were his own servants that he could arm for battle. Now you can imagine, uh, you know, if you had that many servants, you'd have a real food supply. 
uh, problem, you know, feeding everybody because you're responsible to take care of them all. So Abram was a man of very vast means, very vast wealth that he could support and keep that many servants. They pursued them as far as Dan. Now, Dan is in the uppermost part of Galilee. It's just before you get to the base of Mount Hermon. It's probably five miles from Banyas, where the Jordan River comes right out of the base of Mount Hermon. And so you're clear on up at the northern end of the upper Galilee, which means from uh, the area of Hebron, he pursued them about 125 miles, which without armored uh, weapons carriers and so forth, that was a pretty long jaunt for these guys to go, figuring that on uh, sort of a forced march, you can get 25 miles a day. You get an idea of, of how far they pursued these armies on up to the area of Dan where they caught up with them in the area of Dan. And he divided himself against them. And he and his servants by night, he smote them and pursued them to Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Now Damascus is some 45 miles beyond. So he came upon them at night, took them by surprise, which was probably the wisest thing he could do. Because they, the, the armies that he was facing were numbering anywhere from 50 to 100,000 men. And here he comes up with his 318 servants plus those of the three brothers uh, that went with him, confederate with him. And so probably at most an army of 500 or so coming against several thousand who had just wiped out almost a whole civilization, wiped out five kings of the plain. They're tough guys. And Abram came on them at night. Now they probably, number one, figured no one would dare attack us unless they had a huge force. At night they couldn't see how many Abram had. And they were taken by surprise. They were confused. They began to flee. But from that point it was hard to flee because you've got to go right on up the Golan Heights. You're in a box canyon. And so whenever you flee, the direction you always try to flee at least is home. And so they started heading home up Mount Hermon, really, because they came to the left side of Damascus, which means that they went on up Mount Hermon. And as they were fleeing, gave Abram and his men a chance to really wipe at their flanks and, and to come up and, and to destroy them as they were coming up on them. Pursued them all the way to Hobah, which is uh, to the left of Damascus that would be going north. And uh, so Abram destroyed, actually, these armies that had come. And he brought back all of the goods. And he also brought again his brother, or his, literally his nephew Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So these kings had taken a lot of captives that they would have made slaves. Abram rescued them all and was bringing them back. And as he was returning, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedolomar. And the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is in the king's dell. 
And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of El Elyon, or the God the Most High, or the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of the heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And Abram gave him tithes of all. So briefly, we are introduced to this interesting mystical person, Melchizedek, of whom the scripture speaks very little. It tells us nothing of Melchizedek's parentage, nothing of his mother and father. It tells us nothing of his genealogy. All that it tells us that is that he was a servant or a priest, actually, of the most high God. He came out to Abram with what? Bread and wine, which are the symbols of communion. And he gave these unto Abram, and then he blessed Abram. Now the lesser is always blessed by the greater. Therefore, in blessing Abram, it puts him a level above Abram. In Abram, giving tithes of all that he had to him. Again, it was a signifying of the lesser paying the tithes to the greater, to the servant or the priest of the Most High God. So Abram received the blessing, recognized the man as a priest of the Most High God, gave tithes of all of the spoils that he had taken, unto him. Nothing more is said of Melchizedek until we get to the 110th Psalm. And suddenly, out of nothing that seems to relate to the rest of the 110th Psalm, we read the words, I have sworn and will not repent, I have made thee a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Abraham's son, Isaac, had a son, Jacob, who had 12 sons. One of Jacob's sons was Levi. And when the law was established, Levi was the tribe that was to become the priestly tribe. And so they were called the Order of Levi, or the Levitical Order of Priesthood, order referring to the family. Now here is an order of priesthood that precedes the Levitical order and is superior to the Levitical order in that Levi, in essence, when Abram paid tithes, the great-great-grandfather of Levi, Levi, in essence, was paying tithes unto Melchizedek. So it puts the order of priesthood of Melchizedek in a superior order to the Levitical order. And God has sworn and will not repent. I have made thee a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That psalm had to remain a mystery as did Melchizedek himself until we come to the book of Hebrews when the mystery begins to unravel. For the author of the book of Hebrews, when he begins to point out the fact that Jesus, though he is from the tribe of Judah, of which the scriptures have nothing to say concerning the priesthood, but even though he is of the tribe of Judah, 
He is of the order of priesthood of Melchizedek, the superior order of priesthood. Thus he can be the great high priest of those who will come unto God through him. Now Melchizedek was called the king of righteousness as well as the king of peace. King of peace is Salem, which is the early name for Jerusalem. So he was one of the first kings of Jerusalem. But he was also called the king of righteousness. Now it is interesting when he refers to Christ, who is of the order of Melchizedek. And he talks about Christ making intercession for us as our great high priest. Wherefore, we have a great high priest, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, the repetition of that word, the righteous, king of righteousness. We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, literally, who has entered into heaven for us. Now you see how the word of God is so beautifully tied together. Here's just a little snatch in Genesis. By itself, we don't understand it very much. If that was all that was said, Melchizedek would be just lost in history as a mystical character. We know very little about him. And then when David comes along in Psalm 110 and said, I've sworn and will not repent, I've made thee a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you think, what in the world is David talking about? Psalm doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense until it's all put together in Hebrews and we realize that Jesus is our great high priest. He's not of the tribe of Levi, true, for he had to be the lion of the tribe of Judah to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah. But he is also the priest, but not after the Levitical order, after the order of Melchizedek, who has neither mother nor father or genealogy. Now, there are many Bible scholars who believe that Melchizedek was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Very possible. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it. They said, what do you mean Abraham saw you? You're not 50 years old. So Jesus could have been referring to this particular incident. Now, after Abram received the elements of communion, the bread and wine, received the blessing, then the king of Sodom, verse 21, said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. You know, just give me the hostages that you've recaptured, and you keep all of the loot. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God. El Elyom, he uses the same term now that Melchizedek had used concerning God, El Elyon, the Most High God. I've lifted up mine hand to unto the Jehovah, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread to a shoelace. I'll not take anything that is yours, lest you would say, I made Abram rich. Abram had acknowledged that the blessings and the riches that he had had come to him from God he was not about ready to let any man take credit for making him wealthy. He didn't want anyone boasting and say, well, I made Abram rich. God had blessed Abram, had prospered him, and Abram wanted only God to get the glory. So he refused to take any, not even a thread or a shoelace. He said, except just the food that these young men who went to battle with me have eaten and so forth, and, and these others let them have their share but I'm not going to take anything because I don't want you saying 
I made Abram rich. It's an important lesson for us to learn, and that is never take the bows for the work of God, or never let man take the credit for the work of God. Man seems to always like to take credit for what God has done. Well, I fasted for many weeks, and I did this, and I did that, and I made this commitment, and I made this sacrifice, and I, 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 you know, and because I am so wonderful, God has done all of this. Oh, how horrible. When man seeks to take credit for what God has done, the Bible says that no flesh should glory in his sight. And so Abram was very wise in this, recognizing that the hand of God's blessing had been upon his life and would continue upon his life because God had promised it. He said, hey, man, I won't even take a shoelace from you. Because in time to come, I don't want you to say, hey, I made Abram rich, recognizing that God was the one who had blessed him with these riches. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Genesis on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Genesis 14 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord keep His hand upon your life and may he open up your heart and your mind and your understanding to the things of the Spirit. And thus, may you live in that place where God can bless you as he desires to bless you. May you keep yourself in the love of God as you walk in fellowship with him this week. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. I have a question for you. How would you like to go from Genesis to Revelation in one year using a daily Bible devotional? And what if this devotional was written by Pastor Chuck? Then I've got great news. Be one of the many thousands of readers who have enjoyed reading Wisdom for Today, a daily devotional that speaks volumes of wisdom to apply to your everyday life. 
Come alongside Pastor Chuck as he takes you on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, providing God's truth to answer your questions and discover how this might very well become your most beloved and cherished devotional ever. To order your copy of Wisdom for Today, a leather hardback, for yourself or for a loved one, please call The Word for Today at one 800 272-9673 or visit us online for more information and to read a preview at thewordfortoday.org.